You're Saying It Wrong is a podcast about words, where we go to the experts to dive into what we get wrong and sometimes what we get right. Okay. Well, kind of yes and kind of no. <laughs> when we try to speak this weird English language. Listen to You're Saying It Wrong every other Friday from KMUW, part of the NPR Network. This is Marginalia, a production of KMUW Wichita. Marginalia. Notes in the margin of a book. Notes, commentary, and similar material written in the margin of a book. Comments and notes which are incidental incidental or additional to the main topic. topic In the margin of a book. When Michelle Hennevin wrote her novel, Surge, aspects of her real life and experience serving on her own church's search committee couldn't help but emerge on the page. Throughout this novel, following the search committee of a Unitarian Universalist church on its quest to find a new minister, Hunovan explores the treatment of women as the quote-unquote last frontier and the effects of unconscious bias. I spoke with Michelle Hunovan about fictionalization of real people, her experience as a restaurant critic, and the desire for change. I'm Beth Golay, this is Marginalia, and here's our conversation. Do you have an elevator speech for this novel? I do. It's basically, this is a story of how eight intelligent, well-educated, well-meaning people make some very surprising decisions. So these eight individuals are on a search committee for a new minister for a church. And, you know, we're seeing this committee through Dana's lens. She is the protagonist, and her life seems to mirror yours somewhat. She uses food and gardening as a lens for her writing, and now the search committee. Have you served on a search committee for a church? I served on a really kind of minor search committee. I mean, probably wasn't minor to the assistant minister whom we eventually hired, but it was only a you know one to three month committee experience, whereas uh, for a senior minister, it's a whole year. Yeah, and it's hundreds of hours of time and commitment that these eight individuals had to put into this search. And I noticed, and this is kind of out of order because now I'm just asking curious questions. There were several people throughout this book who kind of warned that eight is too many for a search committee. It would be better with, with five or six. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Well, it's probably even better with an odd number because then you can't end up with a tie. When I was writing the book, naturally you want some conflict in the book. And I knew that this search was going to have some difficulties. When you read the handbooks, there are all of these uh, Unitarian Universalist handbooks for how to pick a minister. They kind of tell you all the things not to do. So my committee has the mistake made that they're too big. It's too unwieldy, but the committee to select the search committee really wanted to hit every demographic in the church. Well, and, you know, the the committee did have, you know, varied generational, gender and lifestyle representation, and they acknowledged the need to avoid unconscious bias. But it seems like biases still emerged and some opinions were adopted because of heavy handedness. And, you know, you mentioned that it's better to have an odd number so there's not a tie, but they needed to get 100% on board or else it was a failed search, right? So how difficult is it to get 100% buy-in from a search committee that is, you know, this varied? Well, I think we can look at our country and answer that question. How do we break the partisan divide? How do we bridge the 
young old divide in the search committee or the people that like experience and capabilities rather than sort of theatricality and charisma. How do those people meet? How do those people find consensus, which is what we're talking about here? I wish I had the answer, Beth. (laughs) So one of the steps in the search um, was something called a cottage meeting. Yes. And I wrote this down and I'd have to go back in my book to find out exactly when it was, but I was struck because one of the candidates was being held to a higher standard because she was a woman. I'm wondering if you could talk about this. Was this, do you think it was unconscious bias or do we consciously still do this? Oh, I I think that women are kind of the last frontier. I wish we had a female president by now, but we're dazzled by other things in the meantime. The cottage meetings were these small meetings where the congregation could come and learn about the search committee. And each cottage meeting was designed separately. And Dana's cottage meeting, she made up a couple of ministers. She had a thundering African-American older minister at retirement age, looking to move to California to be near his grandkids, but also to keep working. Even though the whole church had said that they wanted somebody younger and they wanted a woman. So the other candidate she proposes is this young woman or woman in her 40s, I guess, very experienced, um, just completely capable, going to give the church everything it wants, more social action, good preaching, great management skills. And still, because they, they just couldn't resist this destination preacher, everybody kept voting for him as opposed to her. I read a piece that you wrote for the Paris Review about Mm -hmm. being fictionalized and how it happened to you with T.C. Boyle. And I especially loved when you described opening your MacBook Air to see a strange older woman frowning at you. And then you realized you were looking at a photo of yourself on the screen. And you wrote, quote, an unexpected reflection of self rarely provokes joy. So I'm wondering, do friends and acquaintances look for themselves in your writing? And if they do, are they offended or flattered, (laughs) even if they're not there? (laughs) Uh, It's both. Actually, I've put a couple of old boyfriends in my books, and they both said, oh, you know, so flattered. One of them said, so happy to be made into art. On the other hand, um, I've had some people be really hurt at the tiniest thing, you know, like a, a friend of mine It really had nothing to do with her, but she lived in Round Rock, Texas. And my book was called Round Rock because there are round rocks near Piru, California, where my book is set. And there's a Round Rock Hotel and the Round Rock Drunk Farm in my book or rehabilitation facility. Anyway, you know, she said, you stole my life. So I think it depends on, you know, personal sensitivity is what I think it depends on. I tried really hard because I, you know, love the people I go to church with. I tried really hard not to base anything on anybody, you know, and to really change some things. And the one, Tom Fox, because he was an older male minister, everybody's going to associate him with the older male minister who retired 
you know, eight years ago. And he's nothing like him, but I still gave the book to the older male minister to read, to see, I said, if there's anything in this that hurts your feelings or offends you, let me know. And he was like, no, it's fiction, it's fine. Some people have a difficult time differentiating between fact and fiction, don't they? Yes, they do, they do. And, and Dana is a lot like me. Um, the narrator of this book is a lot like me, but with enhancements. Like <laughs> she has a couple of donkeys, which I only wish I could have, but my husband won't let me have them. And um, she has a staff job and I was always just a freelancer. So she's, she's like me, but, but luckier. <laughs> and I want to talk to you about your freelancing. You your food writing. I want to talk about that for a minute because I, I read another piece that you wrote and this one was for Lit Hub mm -hmm. about when you were a features writer and the envy you felt toward the restaurant critic and you would spend weeks and months writing a piece and he would simply have to eat and then write. But then you were able to move into the restaurant critic's position. I'm just curious, is the grass truly greener or are there different challenges involved? Well, there are different challenges involved and some people, some restaurant critics really do put in a lot of research, like uh, the late, great Jonathan Gold, the first restaurant critic to ever win the Pulitzer Prize. He did a lot of research in those um, pieces that he wrote. And they were also, you know, beautifully written. He was a great, great writer. I was more of a lightweight. I was a more of an eat and write and do a little bit of research. I didn't learn about the great cuisines of the world in great detail. So it's a question of commitment, I think. And, you know, my job was to eat in a restaurant and tell people if it was a restaurant that they would like to go to or not. If you ever had a bad meal, did you give that restaurant a second chance before you wrote a bad review? Or how does that work? Oh, yeah, I would eat in a place usually at least three times. You know, I, we were cleaning out our garage recently, and I found boxes of old restaurant reviews. And I was a awfully critical. I was kind of persnickety. You know, youth, youth can afford to be perfectionistic. I think I would be much gentler now, especially since I've had critics after me as well. You know, to me, this book did seem divided between youth and maturity. Mm -hmm. And and Dana was close to Tom Fox, who was the senior minister who was leaving, and she was close to the minister just prior to Tom Fox. Was there an interim in between there? Yes, and she was friends with the interim. Yeah. But with these searches, you're bound to lose somebody because you cannot please everybody, right? Exactly. Yes, of course. And, you know, you're bound to lose friends, probably. Um, you're bound to get so angry at somebody, you'll never feel the same way about them again. Uh, on the other hand, you'll grow close to people, too. She was able to grow close to people because um, she was with them for an entire year. You know, at the beginning of the search committee, somebody she had served on other committees, couldn't remember her name, but at the end, he was finally getting her name right. But then I'm also thinking about Dana was reacquainted with two people who she had met in seminary 22 years prior. Without that constant or even, you know, interstitial reacquaintance, I mean, it's it's a huge gap, and it's very difficult just to jump right in and not be surprised at 22 years of change, isn't it? Yes, I think so. Well, there are two people. One was her best friend in seminary, whom she was very, very close to. But Dana 
does not complete seminary because she gets a good job at the Times and uh, makes a decision, a difficult decision to stay with food journalism, which was her first love and does not finish her seminary education. And for a while she stays in touch with her best friend from seminary who goes on to get ordained and be sent to a church that was a disaster. And the best friend leaves that church and pretty much leaves everything else about ministry behind. It's so traumatic for her. And that includes Dana. And so Dana is reunited. I think there's a theme in the book about friendship because I attended church for, you know, 20 odd years. And whenever I was in a small group at church, a small discussion group, sooner or later, we had to talk about friendship and about these broken friendships where, you know, some 70 year old man will say, you know, I talk to this friend of mine every week for 35 years, and now he's not returning my calls. What's going on? You know, these broken hearted people. And the loss of a friendship, I say in the book, is one of the great unreported tragedies of adult life because there's no way to process it. If you get a divorce, everybody knows about it. It's public and people even kind of know what to say to you. And if someone dies, there's the funeral, the memorial services. But for a lost friendship, what is there? So I was really interested in that. And then all of a sudden, Dana meets her lost friend again after 16 years, hasn't heard a word from her. And two things happen. One is that they talk like old times. They just immediately reconnect. They were soulmates. But then Dana also feels incredibly wary because this person hurt her deeply. And the other person that um, she's reunited with from seminary was the one man in her cohort, the one Unitarian Universalist seminary student that was male. And he's always been kind of sure of himself and a good preacher and cocky and I wouldn't say she's so delighted to be reunited with him. You know, one of the candidates commented to Dana during the process, and this is a quote, that the people who join search committees are often seeking a change for themselves. The internal self is conducting its own search along the churches. What was Dana searching for with this parallel search? Well, you know, Dana has been at the same church for 24 years. She's gotten really itchy there. Everything annoys her about the church. Hymns annoy her, responsive reading, something the minister does at the end, and she really loathes the bell choir. So one of the things she's searching for is a way to either leave or reattach to this community that's fed her for so many years. She needs a new way in. But also she's had the same job for 20 some years and You know, she's a little sick about writing about things she put in your mouth. She she's she's itchy. She's like a a snake about to shed her skin. And and what is she searching for? She can't put her finger on it. But, you know, the nature of a search is it's the road, not the destination. It's the path, not the destination. You know, this was an incredible dive into human nature and group dynamics. And I'm wondering, what do you hope readers will come away with after reading Search? Well, I just, I just want them to have 
had some literary pleasure, to feel that they've they've gone through something. And I was once interviewed by a seven-year-old who asked me what I wrote about. And I thought, oh man, what do you say to a seven-year-old? And I said, I write about people that get into trouble and then get themselves out of trouble. And the search committee, I guess they kind of, they don't get into trouble, but they certainly get into turbulence and they have to get out of this turbulence. And, and that's, a, that's a whole experience. I want it to be, when I say literary pleasure, um, I'm hoping that the sentences are good and that it uh, has humor and good characters. I mean, I just want people to have a good time is, is maybe, um, I do want them to have a good time, but I, I want them to enjoy themselves in a hopefully somewhat involved, profound way. Is there anything that you would like to talk about that I haven't asked? Yeah, because no, I haven't talked to anybody about this and um, the book has recipes and there's that. But the other thing that I really had a lot of fun with was there's a mixologist. Um, one of the characters is a mixologist and he makes up drinks. And I had a lot of fun with that. I haven't had a drink in 34 years. I'm sober. But when I go out to dinner, my husband reads the cocktail menus and, you know, those $20 cocktails. And they're, uh, they're so creative. And I just wanted to make some up myself. And so I sort of did them in kind of a punning way, like, there's the Mary Oliver, which is like a wine spritzer with, uh, I think, fennel ferns in it. And then there's the Michael Servetus. And Michael Servetus was a Unitarian theologian during the Reformation, and he got kicked out of Spain. He was from Spain, and he went to Geneva, where John Calvin had him burned at the stake. And so the Michael Servetus has habanero spiked tequila, um, Seville orange liqueur, smoked salt and lime juice. And now I can't remember if it was described as scorching or smoldering. <laughs> scorching. <laughs> That's right. We had a book party last Sunday and my husband actually made some Michael Servetuses. And while he's trying to figure out the proportions, I'm going like, is it scorching? <laughs> yes, it's scorching. That was Michelle Hunovan, author of the book, Search, which was published by Penguin Press. Thanks for joining us for Marginalia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producer is Haley Krausen, and our marketing assistant is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay. <laughs>